Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Hello, everyone. It is my esteemed pleasure to introduce to you our guest today, Jessica Santana. Jessica is the co founder and CEO of America on Tech a nonprofit organization focused on narrowing the economic and racial wealth gap in underestimated communities. AOT provides students with access to mentoring, networking, and professional experiences to prepare them for careers in technology. Their work has been recognized by major media outlets, including Forbes, CNN, and TechCrunch. Before AOT, uh, Jessica's worked as a technology consultant for prominent companies like J.P. Morgan Chase and Accenture. She's received numerous accolades, such as being named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and New York uh, NYN's 40 Under 40 Rising Stars list. Santana is also engaged in various leadership roles and has spoken at prominent events like South by Southwest, EDU, and the White House. She holds undergraduate and graduate degrees in accounting and information tech from Syracuse, along with a Certificate of Business Excellence in Executive Education in Social Enterprise from Columbia Business School. So Jessica, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We want to just start off hearing a little bit about the origin story of America on Tech. So tell us about how you got started. What gave you the idea? How did it come about? Yeah, so America on Tech was a passion project um, that my co-founder and I dreamed up on the back of a Starbucks napkin back in 2014. Him and I were working in the tech sector at the time, and we were the first people in our family to ever pursue a career in the field. We were also the first people in our family to graduate from college and just go into corporate America. And I think once we graduated, seeing our starting salary being about four or five times our family's household income, we had big questions about how it was possible for us to get there. And yet when we go back to the block or we go back to visit our family, there's so many young people that don't even know that the innovation sector is something that they could pursue, even though there are they are over-indexing on all of these technology platforms all of the time. Um, couple that with the experiences of being people of color in corporate America and talking to talent acquisition a lot of times about, you know, why is there a lack of representation of black and brown people here? Um, you know, a lot of the language used was very deficit-based. It was, you know, black and Latino people are just not interested. They're not, you know, um, you know, they're not pursuing the field. And we just knew that. It wasn't that they were not interested. It wasn't that they did not exist. It wasn't that they didn't want to pursue this industry. It was really just that they don't didn't know that this was an opportunity that they could pursue in the first place. And you cannot be what you cannot see. And so I think out of a sense of frustration, I think out of a sense of pain, um, we wanted to make sure that, you know, we became um, stewards of resources in the communities that we're from so that other young people can get access to careers in technology. And so it started off with just 20 students in Brooklyn, New York. We were actually called Brooklyn on Tech before we were America on Tech. Um, And we couldn't have imagined growing into a national organization at the time, just because him and I didn't come from like a traditional education or a nonprofit background. And so 
really thinking about the origin story. It really came from a place of wanting to serve and wanting to create a difference and make a difference in the communities that we were from. I love it. I love it. And it, this is just such a, I think, an inspiring story as well, just to take that initiative to be the change that you wanted to see and do it for young people who are basically just like you, right? Um, so I'm really curious, or we're really curious to know about the challenges you faced, if you could name, I'm sure there were plenty as a founder um, and moving through startup phase and all that that comes with, I'm sure there are plenty, but if you could name for us a couple, like what were your main challenges as you've been getting um, America on Tech off the ground? Yeah, I think that there were three main challenges when I think about the beginning stages of our organization. Um, I think there were three main challenges. I think the first challenge was um, needing to master myself as a leader. You know, I I think because of the fact that I didn't realize um, um, how, you know, intricate and how complicated and how, how multi-layered our sector was a lot of times um, leading the organization in the beginning stages. I didn't have the domain expertise to really navigate the waters. And a lot of times I would um, get frustrated or mad or upset. And um, I used to always go to this idea of like, you know, things should not be as hard as they are when you're just trying to make a difference in your community. Um, and I think that as I've grown as a leader, I've realized that the systems that I'm trying to undo are centuries old systems that were designed to do exactly what they are doing right now, which is hurting and oppressing people of color and especially those students that we're trying to reach in our programs. And for me to think that um, I by myself can make a change in one minute um, when these things have been manifesting in our cultures for such a long period of time, I had to master myself and set realistic expectations and goals and realize that the work that I was going to do um, was going to have to be long-term, deep work that was rooted in narrative change, racial healing, building trust with communities, building trust with philanthropy, um, and even understanding the ways in which separation and the law and law and the economy, all are intricate factors in creating um, an environment that I would have to navigate in order to be able to provide the resources that I'm trying to provide. So I think the first was mastering myself um, as the biggest challenge. I think second um, was fundraising. You know, in the beginning stages, you would assume that when you are pitching to people who own dollars about wanting to bring resources to communities of color, that I'd be, I'd be, everybody'd be like, yeah, that makes a whole bunch of sense. But I think that, um, I think that in the same ethos of the um, the systems being designed to do exactly what they're wanting, to, that they're designed to do, I think that, um, there were lots of really, I think, weird questions that we got in the beginning around like, do you really think that you can bring coding and technology education to Black and Latino students who are already behind in math and science and they can't read and, you know, they, um, they're not interested and um, you should just be focusing on only elementary school students because that is when, you know, you can make the most difference. And I understood um, 
where folks were coming from and how those biases um, really entered their their brains. And um, I can see how they arrived to the places that they arrived. But I think that because I've always approached this work from a very unapologetic um, lens about what I think our communities are saying they want access to and not um, letting folks who are seemingly gatekeepers be the ones to to say this is where we're going to direct resources because we feel this is where the resources should be directed. I always saw a direct conflict between, you know, what um, our community saying, our communities were saying they wanted versus what the funders were saying they wanted and um, having to not take personal that people who have so much power um, can really, uh, I guess you could say, create an environment of unsafety for founders and for leaders who are trying to make change by spitting such nasty thoughts and such nasty commentary um, was really hard. And I really didn't enjoy the process of fundraising um, because it felt very deeply personal that every time that they talked about one of our young people, it felt like they were talking about me. Um, and so I think fundraising was definitely a challenge in the beginning stages. And I think the last thing I'll say is um, knowing your boundaries as an organization um, and knowing what you will do and what you won't do. You know, um, after the murder of George Floyd in June of 2020, our organization, like many organizations that were focusing on decreasing the racial wealth gap, um, were approached by people who had not even acknowledged them for years. And now it was time for them to want to give funding and finally want to invest in proximate leaders. And I think that um, that can feel really exciting when you're ignored for a long period of time and then all of this attention is starting to come to you. Um, it can feel really exciting and you want to say yes to a lot of things, but then you realize that your movement in this work is beyond um, just saying yes and taking dollars. Your movement in this work is to really design with, for your, with, uh, with your community and not for them. And so I think learning your boundaries as an organization um, and what you will say yes to and what you will say no to is incredibly important um, because if not, you could just be taking dollars to do projects that aren't really in alignment with your ethos or the kind of change that you want to make. And you're only taking those dollars because they'll provide an injection of capital into your organization, but they don't actually make substantial and real change. And so um, I think those were the three challenges and they were all in different phases of our organization's growth. Jessica, first, first, I just want to thank you for that answer because um, I think you just all taught us also a masterclass in in you know trying to build a successful nonprofit. You know, like thinking of you know destination or journey over destination. I, and I thank you for that, but also the idea of mastery of self. Um, I'm sitting with that because that's that's a powerful theme for us in so many different spaces. Um, I'd like to say that we did this intentionally, but that would be lying. So funny enough, this year marks about the 30th anniversary of the of the public access to internet. Um, I looked it up this morning. I was like, wait a minute. Sounds about right. Close to 30 years. I looked up like, so lo and behold, Jessica, considering that, and we think about the the nexus of technology and education, and you've really seen you know, these different trends, you know, from the onset of the internet, obviously. 
where do you see in the work that you've done the biggest missed opportunities of where tech and education, it's funny, this is an audio medium, but I'm making these gestures with my hands, right? But um, of where, you know, these two major areas have interceded, have missed opportunities of really being effectively integrated um, and what, what's been the, the end result of those missed opportunities? Yeah, I think there are two that immediately come to mind. Um, I think that there is still very much a huge disconnect between schools, whether they are high schools and employers or colleges, university programs and employers. And I would even downright say vocational programs post high school and employers. So for me, there is a huge discrepancy between the ways in which educational institutions, whether formal or informal, actually collaborate with industry to be able to identify um areas in where young people need to be trained in order to be prepared for the future of work. And I think part of this is because I don't think any of these entities see themselves as accountable for employment outcomes. So when you have, for example, a high school whose metric for success is how many students am I graduating and enrolling in college, and then you have an employer that is looking for talent, but the institution that was seemingly supposed to be the party that prepared the young person for this kind of career was only focused on college matriculation, the employer then feels like there is a lack of readiness on behalf of the young person to be able to enter these kinds of careers. At the same time, the schools and the institutions are kind of like, well, I do not believe this is my um, role because one, I'm I'm strapped for resources. And on top of that, um, I don't have the actual talent in-house to be able to deliver career-oriented material. And on top of that, my superiors are not beholding me to any kind of metric for success that has anything to do with career and or technical education. And so you have two people who have a shared interest in wanting to see, or two entities having a shared interest in um, wanting to see young people succeed and how they get there are all very different and there's not very much um, collaboration and still things are operating in a lot of silos. And I think that if there were opportunities for employers to really um, collaborate with college universities and high schools to create more intentional um, opportunities for pipelining talent, I think that that would change tremendously employment outcomes for young people, especially for young people of color in our country. Um, and I think maybe the second missed opportunity is um, the role of um, organizations to not always have to see things as scalable. I think in the nonprofit sector, um, people are like, all right, this is great. This reaches 100 children, but I need to get this to 1 million children. So then what ends up happening is that the strategy that you created for 100 children then becomes a one-size-fits-all model for how you will bring this to 1 million children, not realizing that the million children you're trying to serve all have such 
unique, diverse, and different backgrounds that you actually basically designed a program that was scalable, but really didn't meet the needs of the young people that you were trying to serve. And so I think in this space, the second missed opportunity is really not always focusing on the mass and scalable solutions, but really thinking about how do we pour resources in a way that is intentional, in a way that, um, honors the lived experiences of the people you're trying to serve and also gives them an opportunity to share what their unique needs are um, and build resources around that rather than always trying to focus on scale. Thanks, Jessica. And so I think this really leads to a little bit of what your organization is doing, actually providing some of that bridging of the gap between those entities. Can you tell us a little more about that and what the young people who come into your organization experience? Yeah, for sure. So um, AOT is very much ingrained in uh, bridging gaps between young people's experiences with education and the industry. And you can see that reflected in our program model and our program design. The first thing I'll say is that all of our uh, training curricula is built in-house and it is our intellectual property that has also been co-created and co-developed with the industry itself. So I'll give you an example. Right now, we run a tech skills fellowship for 18 to 24 year olds, which are alumni of our high school programs who might be enrolled in a college or university program or are looking to seek employment. There are different themes within this fellowship that follows a specific skills track that a student might want to pursue. Our partnership with NBC Universal basically helped us co-create and co-design a cybersecurity fellowship with their cybersecurity team that then led to our students being able to be trained on that skill set that then led to an industry recognized certification that will now lead to jobs um, within MBCU because they helped design the curriculum based on the skill sets that their organization needs. Um, and so I think that's one way that we address it. I think the second way that we address it is through socio and emotional learning. You know, a lot of the work that we do through our programs um, focuses on building the growth mindset, the resiliency and the agency of the students in our programs so that they really see themselves as true contributors to the tech industry and not just people who are outside observers because no one looks like them. So we're intentionally recruiting mentors of color, making sure that all of our instructors are instructors of color, that we have equitable representation of women in our classrooms, that we are unapologetically um, saying that we serve students of color and basically creating, you know, marketing material that they see themselves reflected in. And so I think for us, it's um, the socio and emotional learning piece that um, also um, counts for creating an experience for young people to really see themselves as part of this industry. And I think the third thing we do is actual internship and job placement. Just this summer, we've placed over 240 plus students across our three regions into paid internships with employer partners. Some of these um, and partners are big companies like NBCU or Goldman. And then we have other um, 
you know, smaller companies and startups that maybe um, don't have really big tech teams, but have a tech need that our young people can solve. Um, and they are all paid internships, salaries ranging between like 18 to $50 per hour, depending on the employer. Um, and we even have students um, outside of the internship program that we're continuously placing into jobs uh, with companies like Uber. And I think some of the success stories around this is really seeing like 18 to 24 year olds who are either, either recent high school grads or recent college grads obtaining jobs with total compensation packages of upwards of $200,000, $250,000, which for some people, that amount of money doesn't seem big, but for our young people, that amount of money creates such butterflies effects um, into their communities because not only can they provide for themselves, but they can also provide for their families as well. And so those are the ways in which we are collaborating um, with the industry to make sure that we don't repeat those same cycles of um, not addressing gaps within a student's experience that really leaves them out of spaces of innovation. Amazing. That's really so fantastic to hear the direct impact that that's having on, on the young people going through your program and really connected to your mission, right? which is really eliminating or decreasing the racial wealth gap. Uh, so this, we couldn't do this podcast or, or have you on as a guest without talking about the impacts on, of generative AI. Mm -hmm. Uh, so just wondering from your standpoint, you know, as a community and, and as the public, we're just really learning about how generative AI might impact our experiences, uh, may, um, impact, you know, the future of work. How are, what are you all paying attention to and what shifts are you considering um, when thinking about generative AI? Yeah, for sure. Um, so first we're thinking about this from a curriculum standpoint and making sure that our trainings don't go outdated. You know, when we created our first version of the curriculum for AOT, this was back in 2014 almost 10 years ago. And so the skills that were relevant back in 2014, some of them may transfer, some of them may not. And so for us, um, it's been very intentional um, approaches to making sure that we're collaborating with our board and also our employer partners to make sure that our curriculums are fresh and up to date and are inclusive of machine learning concepts and AI learning concepts um, and making sure that young people have the not only the skill set, but the actual language to talk about this effectively. Um, I think the second thing is uh, really thinking about um, how to incorporate a lot of the ethics associated um, with introducing this to our students so that they don't just have the skills and um, kind of run with them. We want them to be able to understand that this is an amazing skill set that not everyone has um, been afforded the opportunity to gain. And with tremendous privilege comes tremendous responsibility. And so giving them a framework to understand the kinds of things that they should be taken into consideration when developing tools um, that can really hurt people or can really help people um, with their newly found skill set. And I think the other thing is um, really asking ourselves, um, what are things that 
we are going to advocate against. You know, like we won't, we don't want to work with employers or companies that are, you know, creating products and services and tools that really have adverse effects on the communities that we're trying to uh, work, you know, work with. And so, for example, if there were, you know, um, pieces of technologies that, you know, have historically been used to be weaponized against communities of color, that is not a company that we would ever place a student or uh, one of our alumni into an internship or job because, it doesn't, it's sure they'll get the job, but it really doesn't help them in the long term. Um, if they're the only one that wins off of that opportunity and there are no residual wins because they're working for an employer that hurts um, everything that they represent. And so I think those are some of the ways that we're thinking about it. And I think um, we're really putting um, a lot of onus on companies to guide us through the process because I think they have a tremendous amount of knowledge and wealth that they can share. Um, and I also think just based on what I know, this is still very much in its infancy for them too. Um, and so we're kind of like all tinkering together <laughs> to figure out what does this next phase of tech learning look like. Um, and I think for us, it's just staying at the forefront and making sure that whatever it does look like still has an equity focus um, at the center of whatever it is that we decide to develop. I really appreciate you pointing to that. That's something that we talk a lot about as well, not just the equity focus and the ethics of it and really considering where you know young people are going and how does that um, create an, a meaningful impact for others and not just individual. And so you can really hear how that rings through your program in so many ways. Um, when you think about the future of work, what comes to mind? How do you see that evolving? And what might the role of schools be in that? Yeah. Um, so when I think of the future of work, I think of um, a highly diverse workforce that has um, been given all of the opportunities to succeed equitably because their schools and their community organizations and their institutions were well-equipped with the right capacity and the right curriculum um, in order for them to be able to get to that point where they are pursuing jobs um, that create wealth for them and their families and um, give them a sense of dignity and make them feel like they are contributing citizens to our society. Um, and so when I think of the future of work, I don't think of it from like a skill set standpoint. I think of it from, you know, what does our America need to look like um, in order for us to have a future of work that we can be proud of? Um, and then what I think the role of schools are in this movement is to really see themselves accountable to career pathing. You know, there's some schools that are really good at having work-based learning coordinators, at really trying to build industry partnerships. And then there are some schools that um, may have the resources, but still don't prioritize it. And so I do think for the schools that have the resources, they should absolutely prioritize it. I think for schools that don't know where to get started, uh, feel free to reach out to American Tech or any of your local employers. I know that there's so many amazing people that want to help, but they don't always know where to plug and play. Um, and then for those that have the power, the power to inflict change, um, on communities and on schools that are trying to figure this new, um, um, I guess, way to work. Um, 
now they should really think about the ways in which they can inject capital into amazing, innovative, and creative projects that can leave an, an immeasurable impact on um, the places that they're trying to serve. Jessica, thank you so much. I have to do two things. Well, three things. One, I just want to echo Nick's sentiments. Truly a masterclass, especially for me as a fellow co-founder and just understanding the challenges that come with being in the nonprofit space and really just wanting to do work on behalf of your community and people that look like you. It is no easy feat, but you all are doing amazing, amazing work and growing at such a beautiful, beautiful pace. Um, so I just want to shout you out for that and just thank you on behalf of all of the young people that you serve for the amazing work that you and Evan are doing. Um, secondly, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out Brooklyn. So I just got to do that. This perfect yes. shout out of Brooklyn. So shout out to Brooklyn real quick. And then finally, just uh, we'd love for you to leave with our listeners just how they can follow your work, where they can find you on socials, websites, et cetera. Yeah. So to follow America on Tech, you can go visit our website at americaontech.org. Um, and we are on socials all at America on Tech. So Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all at at or slash America on Tech. We're not on threads yet, but we will be in the next week. Um, and me personally, you can follow me at Jessica Santana on all my platforms or at Jess Worldwide. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. Of course, thank you to Jessica Santana for joining us for that fascinating conversation. And of course, this is our time to, you know, this is usually the conversation that we have you know, over text right now for our, our loyal listeners. We want to bring you under the tent a little bit in, in what's been, you know, what really stood out to us. And what we talk about here is usually what gets played out in text messages, you know, as soon as an interview is over or what we're all talking about, like what really jumped out to us. Stacy and Patrice, to you, to you both, the first thing I, that comes to me here is, you know, we thought of this conversation from the lens of, you know, what does it mean to be to think about the future of work, you know, in terms of from an educational standpoint, um, but at the same time, like where are we with tech and in, in the world of generative AI in, in the education lens? Those were the two themes that were sort of sitting with us when we thought about, you know, having Jessica on the show. In light of that, and in this conversation. What were some of the things that just stood out to you about about today's dialogue? Um, Stacey, I want to go to you first on that. I think something that really stuck out to me is the comment that Jessica made about a future of work we can all be proud of. And she went further to talk through how at current, our schools are not account held accountable for economic prosperity for for all, particularly decreasing the racial wealth gap. And therefore, organizations like hers provide some of those bridges to help students gain access and skills that provide them um, opportunities and pathways towards career that do provide um, sustainable, you know, salaries and experiences and benefits and um, 
And we're not really seeing that solely from schools holistically for all students. Therese, what's, what comes to you? There, there's so much, you know, she's, a, and she used the term proximate leader. Um, so someone who's built an organization to serve young people who were just like her. It's deeply, deeply, deeply emotional work. So I'm left with the idea around um, mastery of self as a leader um, and all that that entails when you are so deeply connected to the work. Um, she mentioned, you know, going to funders and seeking funding and hearing things like, well, are you sure black and brown kids can want to, it's interested in, et cetera, which as we all know is absurd, but um, she mentioned like she felt like they were saying it about her, you know, and that just really, really struck me because it's, it's not easy when you're doing this sort of work and it really is almost an act of healing for yourself. You know, you're getting to do for other people what you almost wish was done for you. And so there's this sort of like cyclical, deep sort of healing connection that I think she sort of spoke to that really resonates with me. Um, and I hope inspires our listeners and those who are interested in like engaging this sort of work um, and inspires them to take action, you know, and to to think about ways that they can make change. Um with, you know, the resources that they have. We've been talking here about, you know, from, from theme to this conversation, but for you both, you know, what, per, as educators, what personally do you connect with from this conversation today with Jessica? Uh, Patrice, I'm going to come back to you. I think it's really the idea, she mentioned this around narrative building and shifting narratives I think so much begins with uh, unlearning and relearning things about ourselves, but also about the young people that we serve. Um, I remember this being in school buildings and just seeing how much the mindset of the teacher plays such a significant part in the trajectory of a student's experience. Um, and so a lot of that is or calls for us to to disrupt a lot of the things that we hold to be true um, about young people, their capabilities, their skills, their cultural backgrounds, et cetera. Um, and so this is no different. And, you know, just thinking about the future of work and how we prepare young people for all of these dynamic changes that are happening literally in this moment, it really just does begin with self, begins and ends with self. Yeah, I mean, hearing Patrice talk makes me also think about the deficit thinking that happens in school buildings and how that feeds into some like narratives, both for the way teachers are thinking about students and what they perpetuate because of that versus disrupting that and then also um, providing space for kids to imagine what is possible for them, the the opportunities that are out there versus just um, focusing on what's not there and really making space to celebrate what is and how that can contribute and build and grow. Uh, speaking of building and growing, I mean, she talked about scalability. She mentioned that 
in reference to nonprofits, but every single one of us educators is familiar with this concept of one size fits all and scalability of a curriculum or a program. Like, hey, if it works here, it must work there. And it has to be happening like lockstep like this. And uh, you need to open your curriculum book and follow page by page, right? And that's such limited thinking. And and we know it doesn't work, right? Because if it what did work, it would have already worked. <laughs> like, how about that? <laughs> like, this is an old habit and process that schools have been engaging in for a really long time now. I don't know exactly when, but I'm sure it's been a long time of engaging with publishers, buying the books, making the teachers, you know, follow page by page instead of really being clear on who are the students in front of them, what are the goals they have together, like she mentioned, building with, right, and with the families, and really creating something more um, localized and impactful for, for the community. A horrible segue here. <laughs> but when you mentioned building and growing, of course, I'm going to bring us all to our show and how not just us, but you loyal listeners can help us do the same as well. First and foremost, we are, of course, available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify. If you're able to listen to it, we're there. Make sure you're rating and reviewing us on Apple. You can obviously do that by leaving us five stars and a statement about what you're really taking away from this show. But if you are not someone that likes to leave comments, email us at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Patrice Winter. And I'm Stacey Schultz. We'll see you next time. <laughs>